This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sun. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here to tell you stories. So, where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. How do you like that? The fault, dear Plutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four feet time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now. Further down the line.
Our guest today is Emerson Whitney. They, in the non-binary sense, they are the author of Ghost Box and Heaven. And they're also on the faculty of Goddard College. This is from an interview I did with Carla Haas Moskowitz about three and a half years ago from the show Ethereal that I co-hosted with Carla from 2016 through 2019. This is an unusually fascinating conversation. I hope you'll agree. Emerson, are you there? Yes, I'm here. What a thrill it is to have Emerson Whitney, who is a BFA faculty, among other things. <laughs> yes. And you're in Los Angeles, and it's probably warmer there than it is here right now. I would say it's probably significantly warmer here, although we are having a version of fall, which is really nice for me. So it's like 60 degrees or so right now. And uh, it's warm. It's like cold enough that I could theoretically have a fire in the fireplace because uh-huh. LA, for some reason, is cold when it's cold. You know, it's actually yeah. surprisingly cold in the evenings and things like that. I, I think I know what you mean. Part of it is what people adapt to. My my daughter lives in Florida, and, and often she calls me and says she is absolutely freezing, and it's like yep. 55 degrees. <laughs> I'm thinking That's it's right. 19 below zero in Vermont. I'm going, oh, I don't even want to hear it. No, but, I get it. But enough about temperature and weather. You know, you are a person who has written some really, I think, beautiful and profound and very unique um, what I would call poetic prose. However, I don't know what it's a hybridish, hybridish. Yes. You know, if you say hybridish, it sounds like it sounds like something that is very different. I don't know what could do you be think? a new term. I think it started. Hybridish. It started here on ethereal. Hybrid people could interpret it in different ways yes. as as a salutation, hybridish, or something that is different. What would what would you call your work? How would you name your work? Um, I would say that you're on point with the poetic prose. That's sort of where I hang out mostly right now. And yeah, I'm, my foundation is as a journalist. I think I told you that or we talked about that the last time I was on the show. But I feel like that foundation of journalism that influences my creative nonfiction hangs out with the part of me that is also a poet. So that's really, I guess, the formal mix of my work. And right now, absolutely, I really, really enjoy writing poetic prose. So, you sent me some, I think, fairly recent work. Is that right? Uh-huh. Uh, it's um, yeah. part of the work that I'm engaging with most right now. It's a larger book project. Um, it's also part of my PhD dissertation for the European Graduate School. But mostly, it's quite a, a mix of things. But... The foundation of it is Levinasian theory, and so it seems like it might be quite heavy, but I hope it's not. Well, I have to ask you, why? I don't like why questions. In what ways would you not like it to be heavy? (laughs) And why do you characterizing it as heavy? Because I didn't find it heavy. No, I didn't either, but I I like heavy. I'm 
perfectly fine with heavy. Yeah, I think for me, I guess giving it the qualifier of a hope that it doesn't have too much heft comes from my own anxiety as someone with a background that's not theoretical or philosophical necessarily, or I guess I should say maybe canonically philosophical. I didn't go to school for philosophy or theory. I had experiences with it in my master's program and just in general, but I didn't study it. So when I first encountered theory, it was actually in my first, I guess, happy encounter with theory was in a class taught by Maggie Nelson called Wild Theory. She called it that. And I really deeply appreciated some of the work that she was giving us. But I do remember on one of the early days of class, I asked why it had to be so hard to engage. Like, why was the language so difficult sometimes? I think we were reading like Deleuze or something. And her response was really helpful to me, which is for me to start thinking of this formal aspect as poetic rather than anything else. And so once I was able to see that, I got really excited about the possibility of theory. And I fell in love with Levinas specifically because his work is so poetic and beautiful and odd, really. He's talked about as one of the more challenging philosophical thinkers to read because of the density and just the obscurity of his work. And I don't know, I'm in love with that kind of thing. And suddenly, once I understood theory and poetry as hanging out together, there's a good definition of both. I think I told a bunch of my students at Goddard that both are really the thinking of being. And I I just love that. So again, I hope that maybe when I'm engaging with theory as a writer, that I can open avenues for others who might have felt a similar anxiety to me. I think partially because, Mm. you know, there are some real social issues that can be addressed through theoretical writing and but mostly I encountered philosophy through the canon so white and western philosophy was my only real entry point and I didn't really want that I didn't feel included in that or I didn't feel like I had some of the access but when I started reading writers like Lorraine Valdua of course and Fred Moten among many others who are writing from their more radical traditions, then I felt really inspired. Hmm. So I guess that's a a long answer. No, no, that's a great answer. And because you're coming on the show sort of in the middle of the show, you missed out on the way the show begins with the doors. People are strange. And we had this... Oh, great. We had this conversation about strangeness at the beginning. (laughs) And... That song and that concept just leads so beautifully into the territory that we are entering with you and and your work and the work of Mm -hmm. Levinas. Just for a little bit of context, I guess it's the it's the teacher in me. Just be, and I do I want you to jump in and read a little bit so that we can. I, I would love to do many things all at the same time, but I haven't been able to figure out how to do that. So <laughs> well, so, we do it we, we do it regardless. <laughs> we do it anyway. Yeah. So uh, everything at the same time. So for the sake of the chronology, a little bit about your studies because we, we're talking about Levinas, who's a a unique person and not widely known <laughs> unless mm-hmm. you happens to be a, a never Jew- heard of him <laughs> a, a jewish oh, <laughs> existential okay. but i love phenomenal i loved i loved what yes. you wrote yes. about him yes. and and his work and reading your piece this morning caused me a lot of 
reflection. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Can and you, it was wonderful reflection. Do you mind just giving us a little mini lesson? And then uh, you've already mentioned your the reason for your attraction, but you know maybe just also help connect a couple of those dots, and then we'll maybe hear you read a little bit of your work, and then we can talk a little bit, and then you could read a little more. That sounds fabulous, absolutely. So I'm a graduate of Goddard. I graduated undergrad from Goddard. Like many Goddard students, I went to many different schools before graduating from Goddard. I went to six different undergraduate institutions before finally finishing, and it took me many years, and Goddard was the place where I really was able to actually feel both inspired and capable of finishing and was delighted to do so, thought I would never go to school after that ever again. And of course I did. I went and got an MFA in creative writing at CalArts here in LA. And then a surprise to myself, once again, I decided to pursue a PhD partially because of the inquiry that I'm talking to you all about right now that I really did want to know more about theory. I was feeling like it's all I wanted to read, but I didn't have an entry point that I could conceive of by myself. So I looked around for classes that I could take and none of the schools would let me take the classes without actually enrolling. So I was like, why not? I'll just actually go to a theoretical philosophy program in Europe. Why not? And uh, I got into the European Graduate School and I've been there for a while studying with some incredible people, notably Helen Sissou, uh, Avital Renel, Judith Butler, and, you know, many, yeah. many others. So it's it's been an incredible experience, and I was introduced to Levinas there by a professor named Diane Davis, who teaches mostly at the University of Texas, Austin, in rhetoric. And... For anyone who's listening who is a potential Goddard student or a current Goddard student, I do feel like it's always important for me to say that I just followed my curiosity and the things that I learned at Goddard about designing my own curriculum and following the things that inspire me have absolutely led me to the educational experience that I've had. And I'm hugely grateful for it. I really do feel like I've grown so much as a learner because of my experience at Goddard and one of the coolest things of my life right now is being able to give that back as a faculty member. So anyway, so that's that part of it. So what would you say characterizes Levinas to explain it to someone who's never heard of him before? So I'm no expert. That's one of the, also the cool things that I've learned about theory and philosophy is that I don't really have to understand the, the breadth of it beyond actually following a kind of, philosophical tradition that inspires me. Mostly I read contemporary theoretical writing, but when I encountered the first book of his that I encountered was Totality and Infinity, that I got really, I was really excited both by the language and the work behind it or the thinking behind it. So I'm no expert, but the way that I understand Levinas is through some of the kind of keywords that come out of his thinking. And one of those is alterity which means an infinite other, essentially. So it's an other that is so vast and incomprehensible that it never stops being other. And the way that I think of Levinas is that he's a philosopher in Jewish thought, but as well as just, I would say, uh, Western theory, although there's some argument that maybe he's not Western in the same way that maybe we think of as, think of Hegel and Heidegger, for example, because he's actually writing against Hegel and Heidegger. Levinas was a student of Husserl's and Heidegger, and 
it was prior to World War II that he was a student and he was, you know, studying under them and learning under them. And one of the predominant philosophical strains of thought that comes out of Heidegger is this idea of being and that I exist in relation to other things. But I use those things as a way to understand my existence, sort of. That's a horrible, I'm sure, summary of Heidegger. <laughs> but that's the way I think of it often, that, you know, this chair exists so that I can better know myself. This table or this other person exists so that I better know myself. The thing I liken that to are sort of the epic myths, like the idea that I have to go on sort of a hero's journey and I encounter a bunch of obstacles along the way. But then at the end, I've learned a lot about myself and here I am. Levinas was put into a prison war camp in France during World War II because of his, I guess, both participation in the military, but also because he's Jewish. And at the time, a lot of his extended family were killed. I believe his wife and his daughter survived the Holocaust, but again, much of his family did not. And while he was in the prison war camp, he very famously wrote one of his first manuscripts thinking a lot about Heidegger because Heidegger had become what we now understand to be uh, very controversially involved in Nazism and that his thinking about this idea of, like, I have a world in which I am the hero actually could lead to genocide. And that is the foundation of really Levinasian theory, is this writing against this idea that, you know, the whole point of the world is for me to better know myself and for me to be a hero. He really outlines that it's actually more about the fact that I don't actually exist until I am called by the other. So in the call from the other, I become, which is just a totally different way to think about it. And I'm completely obsessed with this idea. So that's a little bit of background. That's great. I found it. You had a passage in your work that you shared where you talk about this essential question of Levinas' work, how to, quote, confront the otherness of the Mm -hmm. other without annihilating or canceling that difference or replicating mm-hmm. the other in my own image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I read that, it sort of circled me back to how you begin your piece, really beautifully talking about how you sort of exist in, in those in-between spaces, which I, I, won't, I won't give it away. I'll and keeping it. that in-between space in-between. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very... It's well, very and, uh, right, and Levinas would say, actually, we don't really have a choice. Like, we have no control over alterity. It actually is really just infinite and vast, and it's kind of holy, in a way, to him. But even though we try to kill it, basically either by literally killing it or making it the same as us, assimilating it, that we actually don't have that capacity. Well, we can and fool ourselves. Always- we fool ourselves into, yeah. into what? Into, into, thinking, into thinking that we understand it, that we successfully de-other right. the other. <laughs> yeah. Or make the other yeah. ourself. Yeah. One of the ways of killing it. <laughs> One of the infinite yeah. ways of well, killing it. Right. And I think, at least in my own life, I've often thought of the other as, like, maybe the marginalized group or the marginalized person. But really, Levinas is talking about literally everyone. Every, yeah, everything. And his, his most famous example is this idea of the greeting where, you know, if I'm walking down the street and I'm alone on the street and then another human being suddenly appears or, you know, has also been walking down the street and is now in my line of sight, I am interrupted by their presence. Even if I don't say anything, I still am responding to them. So my response, if I don't say anything, is still a response. Yes. Mm. Inaction is action. It's interesting. So... 
Will you read a passage? And then I know we're going to have a million questions. Okay. I would love to read something. I guess maybe I'll read the beginning. Why not? This book is the black of a wide open mouth. There's no other place to start, really. Just a gape. I like this idea of an open mouth. Lips at liberty. The reckless brushstrokes of a painting. Open and possible. Here's the opposite. Category like a clenched jaw. An endless portrayal. Mirrors, ace bandages, bathrooms, doe eyes, all kinds. Underwear, apparatuses in the underwear. The scar, a scalpel, naked or mostly looking off or down. Don't think like this with me. Not now. Instead, here's a cloud. Its base is still widening, purple and pregnant. No storm yet. A perfect, impermanent slice, dry. We've got our feet in the snow, small black prints, ice up to our ankles. The ceiling of cloud is a mouth of purple. There's almost no air. The only warmth is from a dull sun behind us. Our hands are red in the light. They're mingling. We want to live in the space of changing conditions. We love the limbo. No departure, no arrival, a wide, whipped-up pause. Here's a follow-up question. How to live in between and boundless? This question is a photo of myself standing beneath one of these shaking clouds. I want to live in the space of separated points, doubt, difference, too. I am not unique. I realize we're all tangled. I want to relate to this tangle without untangling, without setting fire. I might also be trying to feel better about myself. I have a small frame, legs that spread out slightly when I sit, not too many muscles. I take pictures of myself shirtless from my computer after I shower, skinny. I don't post any of them. I look at the red splotches on my body and massage them. This is the moon to me, this surface. It's devastating, the link between the hunk that I move around in and my consciousness. What bridge is this? I used to slice at it. I was one of those kids who'd bend a paperclip apart while we were talking. I'd do it slowly so it wasn't obvious. I would make a sharp point, sharp enough to stab my tongue if I sucked on it. It's pink plastic loosened into sheets like bark. I'd nod at you while you were talking and stick the pin end of that paperclip into my hand until it left a swelled hole, bright orange. You don't know me like this. I haven't behaved like this for years. You know me as someone who walks upright and loves people and moves softly through the snow. All of this is true. Still, there's a residue. Right now, I'm under instructions to lay down for 20 minutes a day and contemplate caring. And if I can handle it, to look at a picture of myself while I do so. Today, rather than do this, I stared at this bug I killed. It was helpless on my desk last night, belly up with all its legs looking just under my lamp. It'd been hiking the lamp's base for hours, slipping down the faux brass. It was the kind of bug that could almost be a tick, just big, with a large snout, shaped sort of like a spade. There was a red mark on its back that I liked. It flashed out of the corner of my eye all day yesterday as I moved papers around to give it space. When it flipped over, I lifted an envelope to its legs and watched it right itself and climb aboard. I was feeling friendly, 
helpful. And so opened the door and set it out there on the envelope. I'd been watching it struggle all day and wanted to relieve it. I didn't think it through. I should have set it closer to the house or put it into a knot of wood by the door or an eave. I didn't. I figured it would fly or something. I don't know why I thought this. I hadn't seen any evidence of wings. I left it out there and turned off the light. This morning, the bug was in the exact same place I'd set it. The body was covered in a purple-tinged frost, fuzzy, mute, and static. I watched the lump of body for a half hour, telling myself I'd seen it move. The sun was out. It might be pretending to sleep. When I got up to check, I found that the bug was on its back, legs frozen up, dead body directly over the E of my name. I'm having a hard time contemplating caring. That's, that's where I'll stop for now. There's so much there. So first, I want to ask you about this idea of we want to live in a space of changing conditions. We love the limbo, no departure, no arrival, a wide whipped up pause. First of all, just <laughs> your writing is so <laughs> whipped up pause. I just <laughs> sounds I'm, almost edible. I, I know. It's, I'm just. I'm just such a fan of your writing. It is it's, amazing it's a, writing. The way you interwove your history into infinite open space that you're sort of reaching or it is. It's moving any, toward and being in. Could you talk a little <laughs> bit about this idea of we want to live in the space of change? So first, I'm wondering when you wrote that, did you have a particular mm-hmm. we in mind? You know, I think what's interesting about this project is that there's this moving together of uh, an assortment of things that I've been thinking about. So two of the communities that I'm thinking about most in this text are the disability justice community and the trans community or the gender variant community. And the word community is really sort of elusive and can be frustrating, but I guess I just mean those people that would identify themselves as either one of or both of those groups. I was thinking about a great deal when I was working on this and while I'm working on it now. And full disclosure, it's not done. So you all are usually helping me think through some of these things right now. So I'm grateful for that as I talk. But the confluence of these kinds of strains are really important to this text. And part of that we, I'm sure, encompasses both of those communities. But I was really writing this and thinking of anyone who felt similarly. That was really the we. But what's interesting about this project is that the way that I'm trying to do it at this point is not necessarily to address all of Levinas's work at all. But what I do want to address is this idea of what happens in the response to this infinite other. So what he basically says is that it's infinitely freaky when I come in contact with the other. And because it's ungraspable, I can't master it. I want to master it. I can't master it. Not even just the person, but this thing inside that the person carries around that is infinity. I can't control it. And it bothers me. What I want to zoom in on is that place of discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I want to really put the microscope on that moment of discomfort and separate it out from the next instance that he talks about, which is the killing or making the same, which is killing as well. So I think there's a space between encountering this infinite unmasterability and our response. 
that's what I want this text to be about. And that's also why I'm engaging with the body a lot, because I think the sight of my own body, both inside me and out in the world, engages the same kind of tension. I engage the same kind of tension. I live with a chronic disability that impacts my mobility, but also makes it so that I spend most of my time in, you know, varying amounts of significant pain. And I am trying to relate to that in a way that is not about getting rid of it anymore or curing it. Eli Clare, who's also a Goddard graduate and a brilliant thinker and writer who I admire so much, wrote this book called Brilliant Imperfections, and it's basically against cure. Eli is also writing from this intersection of gender variance or transness and disability. So these are the things I'm thinking about. And I'm also thinking about the fact that in the world, I don't particularly pass as anything. You know, I'm not a passing person, quote unquote, in terms of gender. And in my own experience, there aren't a lot of elders that I can look to who've navigated that and stayed around, you know. So I think the book is a lot about questioning what it means to be uncomfortable and not making others uncomfortable necessarily. That's really not what it's about. It's about me being uncomfortable and trying to navigate that while also thinking about the possibilities for welcoming my discomfort and actually, you know, finding a a friendliness toward it. There's a weird passage in Teresa of Avia's work that I encountered recently in reading a book about pain. And she was, I guess, in a lot of pain when she was writing some of the more expansive religious but also theoretical work that she was engaging with. She wrote The Cloud of Unknowing, I'm pretty sure. And this was in a different work. But she said at the end, like, I want to hug it. I just want to hug my pain. So I think that's kind of the we in this. Or is anybody who's in that same kind of tension? And I think, honestly, I think it might be everybody. Mm. So that's why what precedes that line, I think, I say I'm not unique. Because like Levinas, I think we are actually all other. Mm. So, oh, it's amazing stuff. Just incredible stuff. I had a moment earlier this morning after reading your piece, and it didn't even arise directly as a cause of it, but I think that it is deeply related to it. I had this moment, this visceral, deeply visceral sense of tenderness toward myself mm. in a way that I don't think I have ever done before with myself. And I've really needed that for myself. Wow. I tend to neglect myself Mm -hmm. to that Mm -hmm. level of depth. And to be tender, to really have such a deep sense of tenderness toward ourself in that infinite space of otherness, that infinitely expanding sense of otherness that we'll never have the opportunity to be comfortable with because it's continually changing Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. becoming other. Yeah. And will always be that way, and is really the the essence of life in this world that we we share together. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I I, I asked that specific question because I think it, and also related to what Tonio just said in terms of how how one positions. Well, I I won't go ahead and self reference how I positioned myself as I was reading your work. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. as soon as I saw the pronoun we, I 
Mm-hmm. I immediately went to, this is a statement about society. Like, so uh-huh. that's, that's where I went. So I was thinking, Emerson is saying, we want to live in a space of like, almost saying like, okay, people want to be like that. And then I think, well, actually, my experience is, and I'm making this up because I haven't done the research, it feels like most people are culturally, we like to control. Yes. Because we're, yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. And, and I'd say, I, I, the times that I want to control, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's really the that's the reason I want to. And we're scared of the other. Yeah, and the otherness. Yeah. yeah, and I'm scared of. I mean, I <laughs> I was signing some tax papers this morning, and it was an odd thing on this form that it had the spouse signature before the taxpayer signature, and I don't have a spouse, so I immediately mm. went and going from left to right, I found myself <laughs> signing as my own spouse, which of course was mm-hmm. an opportunity for me to make a joke in the tax office about. I always wanted to marry myself anyway. And then the person behind the desk said, well, that would be easier, wouldn't it? And I said, well, you don't know me. Anyway, I found myself really amusing at that moment. because I was, But in a very tragic sense, because I was actually diving into this philosophical, a little bit what you're talking about. is like, what happens when you other yourself? Because you... Yeah. So I thought, well, what do you mean by, is we, everyone, sort of, other than how you were positioning yourself in this piece. And now I'm kind of hearing that actually you are identifying something that you feel in community with some other people, possibly everyone. So are you feeling that this sense, this astute, in in a way astute sense of the dynamic of othering is something that people actually are aware of? I mean, because you have an awareness of it and I feel it's kind of, I think you are unique. Well, I was going to say, I like the phrase, you know, I'm special and so is everybody else or whatever, you know, (laughs) like we're, yes, I'm unique and so is everyone else. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I don't think that this thinking is particularly unique, but it does come from a long tradition of thinkers that are engaging with similar things, particularly, of course, people who have experienced an acute otherness both culturally and mm-hmm. realistically yes. in their lives, I think maybe have a more of a heightened awareness of these things. But I agree with you, and I feel similarly to you in that I haven't done any real research on this in a large sense, but I would imagine that most people have had at least one experience of feeling other in their lives. And so it would be nice if we could maybe relate to each other and this text from that place uh-huh. I think would be kind of cool. Yeah. We kindred spirits. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then related to that, I think more explicitly you say this follow-up question of how to live in between and boundless. So uh, your piece really introduces this idea of the clouds. I mean, that introduction is just, and the colors, and just to go back to your style yes, of writing. Yes, there's synesthesia in your writing. Oh my goodness. I which mean, is beautiful. I love that. The mouth of purple, <laughs> the dull sun, the red and the light, and then this impermanent slice, dry. You really are it's masterful. It's very poetic. It's, very, it's, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's masterful. And visceral. I mean, I've deeply felt this viscerally in my being, my history. So in your interweaving of your own history, I got to reflect on my own history and my own relationship to all of these very, very deep concepts and experiences that you wrote about so incredibly beautifully. I have to say, I'm I'm always envious of people who can write so cohesively and comprehensively and so poetically. Because because there is this juxtaposition that that I'm picking up, which is just 
is what I think Tonio is referring to. And, and I think I mentioned your style of writing, which is so palpable. You can taste, smell, you can, you can, we feel, we <laughs> feel you in it. I mean, you're yes. expressing yourself. You're giving us something to sink our teeth into, in a sense. Mm-hmm. While you're talking about nothingness. That's where deep, I was going with this. <laughs> deep, <laughs> deep stuff. Yeah. 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 Very deep. So stuff. that, that juxtaposition of that tangible sharpness of right to that paper clip that now that was another mm-hmm. brilliant piece because well, how but many that's what i meant yeah, by by weaving yeah, interweaving yeah, your history yeah. it's it's mm-hmm. just, yeah yeah right to the, to the paper clip that in a way that we can all find yeah. a way to relate deeply relate to mm-hmm. in our from our own lives mm-hmm. yeah. great thank you so i'm glad <laughs> yeah no so then you say i realize we're all tangled Mm, that, yeah. yeah. So it, talk, talk a little, <laughs> and you self-reflect in the middle of the whole thing so beautifully as well. Yeah. So talk about the tangle. Oh man! Well, yeah. the tangle. I think the tangle, that concept right there, in the way that I'm using it, I don't necessarily want to unpack because I actually appreciate that it's a place where me as the writer <laughs> and the reader can get kind of caught there. I just appreciate that. I don't really mean much else by it, except the part that I do really want to hang out with is, you know, I want to relate to this tangle mm-hmm. without untangling, without setting fire, is really about that thing I was suggesting, which is that, you know, this book, the way that this book works in long form is that I'm trying to, uh, there's another book that's called Voyage Around My Room, written by Xavier de Maestre, I think is the author's name. I think it's from the 17th century he was on house arrest for a while, and he just wrote this book, like, being, you know, from the perspective of being stuck in his room. And it was this cool, weird, philosophical text. I'm also inspired a lot by Annie Dillard, who just does so many incredible things by just wandering around wherever she is in her space. And one of the things I really wanted to do with this book was sort of wander around this place of my body's discomfort. I do sometimes feel a little trapped in my house because generally around 4 p.m. I'm, I'm kind of hurting to the point that I don't really want to go anywhere. I can't. And so I'm often home and I do feel a little trapped by that. And part of the exercise of this book is really both inviting the reader into that space, but also for me, just like letting it be enormous and weird and boring and seeing what writing can do with that kind of a texture of experience is something really interesting to me. And I really just made a commitment to myself that was part of the seed for this thinking that I no longer going to try to fix it. I know it's chronic. I know it's there. It's not going away. This is something I live with and I will, I will always live with it. And whenever I say that people are like, but you should, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I understand the desire to help and to cure, but it's so much more painful for me to keep arriving in a place of an attempt to make it go away. And much more, I would like to just be friendly. I want to literally relate to the tangle. I just want to relate to it. I don't, I don't want to fix it. I don't want to chase it off. I just want to have a relationship to it. And I don't think that it's possible to relate to it if I'm trying to run it out. Or change it. Body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That feeling of tenderness towards ourself yeah yeah and specifically for me it's toward this pain like you Mm -hmm. know and i guess for anybody even if it's not a physical pain it might be an emotional pain but 
I really am doing a disservice to myself at this point if I'm trying to make it go. Mm-hmm. And I have to say this, though, I don't know how relevant it is. There's this there's line in here about when you're reflecting back on the paperclip to self-injure, mm-hmm. and then you say, you don't know me like this, I haven't behaved like this for years. You know me as someone who walks upright and loves people and moves softly through the snow. So I don't know you super well, but I am getting to know you. We serve on some Goddardly committees together, and mm-hmm. when I read that, my heart just... Because I, I thought, that is so... I'm like, what I know of you, you are such a, <laughs> this is how you appear to me anyway, you're very loving and soft in terms of movement mm, in yes, the world. It, yes, that's what I felt about yeah, you too. Yeah. And, and this is what threw me <laughs> in some of the pronoun stuff was, there's a very feminine, soft quality about you. Mm. Well, and we've talked about that before, that, you know, femininity and like that's sort of a, you know, giving femininity softness is sometimes a, a way of devaluing softness and yeah. femininity, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, the trouble of that, I think, is also part of this book. That, you know, what does it mean to really be in a place that is maybe decentering for other people? Mm-hmm, like, exactly. you know, does femininity really mean softness? Or is that just something that we've given it? And, you know, I've heard a lot of arguments about you know, the, the fact that we call the earth she, you know, maybe that is great. You know, those pronouns are beautiful. But at the same time, you know, is it another way that we are using she as a way to make it submissive or to, and think of ourselves as being sort of the masters of it? So, you know, I really like to trouble all of these things all the time. And part mm-hmm. of my own life is being in the trouble of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes, absolutely. I think that it's an important area of inquiry, but I also am here to constantly challenge maybe some presumptions that we have about any kind of gender, really. And maintaining the otherness quality of everything Mm -hmm. rather than pegging things and defining things and ultimately killing them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think exactly. I think it's important that that's disrupted. And I mentioned that, you know, because often when we read something, we don't know who wrote it. And so in this case, I did know the person behind the words and thought, you know, what a, <laughs> what a beautiful description of how I see you. Now, whether or not when you were writing that, you were depicting that as, you know, your own image. So I mentioned that in then you talk about a life in chronic pain. Not that anyone should be in chronic pain. <laughs> And just right. that, but that positioning of a person who walks in the world with such love to be in pain, there would be an inclination to say, oh, "I just, I want, <laughs> I want you to feel better and to fix right. it." And so, and I, to say, "No, you don't yeah, have to accept yeah. living this way forever." <laughs> so, 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 right. <laughs> which is all an introduction to my question of just what it really means to find that sort of peace in embracing of that, which I would imagine is, is also hard. Mm-hmm. is an indication of a lot of courage and a lot of wisdom. So where did that come from? <laughs> Actually, I want to say that I'd, I have not found peace at all. Okay. With it. Like, okay. I, part of it is, I guess, I'm not even looking for anything anymore. I just want to have a relationship to it. And, yeah. And I guess in some ways, I don't know, it's hard to encourage anyone to do anything that doesn't bring peace. Actually, that does lead into the next section about this idea of being in the struggle, which is something Fred talks a great deal about, staying in the break. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of writers that talk about this, and whenever I engage that kind of thinking with my students, I often have someone say, well, but I can't be uncomfortable all the time. And I hear that, you know. We don't necessarily all want to be in the struggle all the time, but 
I don't know. I feel that in my own life, a willingness to be constantly upended is truly the only place I actually want to be. Mm-hmm. So I do keep running back into sort of the burning building of myself with regularity. Wow. So remember when I was saying I kind of wanted to zoom in on that moment when we encounter the other, right when we feel the infinite, that unmasterability, and then right before the move to react to that discomfort is the place I want to zoom in. Mm -hmm. And I think in my own life, I really want to zoom in also on my own response Mm -hmm. to the discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm trying to do is not take any action. And that's the kind of cool thing. Mm -hmm. That is the difference maybe is that I could unconsciously stop running into the burning building. Mm -hmm. Even though I live there, I could, you know, like just, which I have many times in my life, unconsciously, you know, watch TV instead, or I actually don't really like TV. That's not a good example. But like, you know, I've done other things to distract myself rather than just being with the thing. So now I'm trying to just be with the thing and not react in a way that would cause me to, I guess, lose sight of the beauty of abandonment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're doing the great work that the great spiritual teachers talk about. Yeah, and so maybe yeah. peace wasn't the right... It, it, you, there's something about the way that you're able to articulate this process that I think is very wise. It's so, incredibly wise, and you do yeah, it while keeping it in the realm of otherness without using mm-hmm. the language that We've co-opted in ways that mm. tend to kill everything. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, well, that is the weird thing about language. I don't know. We'll see if I can do this. I'm not really sure if language can hold it. But we'll-, well, if we find a way to continually stay in the unbounded otherness, then we can go with the continual expansion. Yeah. So. Speaking of language, would you read another section for us? Sure. Happy to. Well, I'll just read the end, but at least part of the end. And the last okay. line is so beautiful in itself. Yeah, it's- thank you. In my free time, I watch compilation videos of merchant cargo ships in storm conditions. I wait for aquamarine water to shake itself from under the bow of whatever ship it is. The camera is always mounted towards the bow. There's always a slit of aquamarine, ice blue, falling out of the frame. Feels like a hand making way out of the water. I realize I'm looking for myself in this water, my own cacophony. Last summer, I was introduced to Emmanuel Levinas, and I think I fell in love because his writing shoved me off a ledge into this kind of foamy discomfort. I like that. I like and dislike it there. The woman who showed me Levinas's work was a Texan lady who I'd written off as straight and probably conservative. I was judging by the photos of her that reminded me of teachers I had in high school with big hair and pinched mouths, a can of Diet Dr. Pepper always at the edge of their desk. But on that first day of class, she explained Levinoff like this. We are infinite. Each human holds the infinite inside them, and that's petrifying. It's petrifying to ourselves and to those around us. All humans remind us of this infinite from which we come. She gestured out the window at the sky and continued. So either try to assimilate them, understand them, master them, and thus kill their infinity, and thus kill them, or we literally kill them, she said. And she shut me up. This is the essential question of Levinas's work, how to, quote, confront the otherness of the other without annihilating or canceling that difference or replicating the other in my own image, end quote. Yourself, myself, stills. 
I attempt to classify, to gather, to possess this infinity, like asking a person of ambiguous ethnicity, where are you from? Like the filtering of genders and races and classes, neat, clean, and attempt. All of these attempts are long failures. The infinite rules anyway, and it's so uncomfortable. There's no rest from the infinite, no solutions here, Levinas says. Just the discomfort of unknowability and an eternity that lives in the flash of our faces. We're powerless. The face of the other resists me, he writes, not because of its power, but because of its vulnerability. It resists me. Thus, this otherness subjects and interrupts me of my mastery, so I want to kill it. But the one I kill is never quite dead enough, he continues. It was always already spectral, this excessive otherness. There will continue to be haunts and visitations, and I hope to haunt you here. Levinas is sometimes referred to as the masochist philosopher, Fred Moten too, I guess. They both encourage staying in the break, a metaphorical commitment to getting thrashed around. Moten suggests that radicality is often a loss of footing, a commitment to discomfort, the hardest part of the wave. This is Levinas's point too, just Levinas's break is the face. I once had the great benefit of asking Moten what he thought about assimilation, trans assimilation specifically. I showed him a video from a Marco Marco show with trans people and drag queens stomping the runway. Capitalism, commodification. He laughed and leaned against the desk. You already are assimilated, he said. It's already happened. Then he shrugged. Afterward, trying to understand, I read some of Fred's work in an interview he'd done with LitHub where he addressed the love he has for books. A fetish, he said, pivoting to commodity. I'm not very moralistic when it comes to commodification, he wrote. I don't think commodities are dirty. I mean, I think commodities are important and useful and necessary. They're eloquent vulgarities. They're these fundamentally important instruments that help to structure our social life. And also, insofar as I'm the descendant of commodities and bear the trace of that commodification in my own flesh, I don't see that I have any standpoint from which to be moralistic about what it means to be a commodity or to be in relation, so to speak, to or even through commodities. That's the end of his quote. I'm grateful for Moten and his writing and the understanding that my question to him about trans assimilation or anything else I write here is myopic. This is the aporia. All of the categories matter and infinity does. The surplus and evading aspect. I want to know Moten's break like the back of my own hand. What happens if I muddy and I stain? This book sloshes. I don't want to be controlled. Who does? Who wants to be eaten up by categorization and subsumed? Yet who wants dissidence and confusion, con, thrown into disorder, fusion, union as if by melting? The black radical tradition says yes, and who is the one with a choice? There's a knocking in my chest. Moten and Levinas link me around the waist and draw my attention to discomfort. Discomfort and an inability to master or possess. Is this infinity? Is this the route to ethics that Levinas maps? Ethics as the first philosophy, a concern with right and wrong behavior. Last night, Joe put clothespins on my labia, too, I think. I couldn't see. I was blindfolded. It was sweet, her putting them on there and sweet feeling just before she took them off, hot and new. I grabbed for her arm as she took them off. I wanted to do it myself, I always do, to control how the blood rushes back. She doesn't let me, and I jerk around. 
The pain is a sound like a pine smell, the beginning and an end smashed together and untraceable, large. Here's my being, I want to say. Here I am. This is what I want to hand you, this event of me. I want to rumble through your body and out of your mouth. Her body is always shadow in the light. My love, the masked one, ripping at me. I can't understand you, Levinas says. I can't make the infinity of you something more solid and digestible. If I do that, I fix you to a point. I kill you. All I can do, he says, is caress. The hue of this caress is on an edge of texture and vibrance. My heart, maybe, ours. It's an accident, too, like a name. Thinking without understanding may be the strength of human thought, says Mark Guillemin. My need for comprehension and mastery is a windy attribute, blocking me from consciousness transcendence. I want to be an accident, a slip in understanding. I'm asking to remain strange. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> there is so much in there. It was, it's almost a crime to have you read all of it at once because there's so many little pieces in there that are so worth savoring and spending time with. Thanks. The line, um, oh so many of them. I know, but th- because this is all about me. <laughs> I want to talk about so, um, the one I want to rumble through your body and out of your mouth. Her body is always shadow in the light. My love, the masked one, ripping at me. So, my love, the masked one, ripping at me. That is incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, that, well, I'm not sure, but I would guess that there are many ways that that enters the reader's heart. For me, it's back to that, I think we talked a bit about it, how the otherness can happen within yourself when you acknowledge your own mask is pretty mm-hmm. profound. So, and I recognize fully that, that we're talking about something that it, it's moving through clouds as you begin your piece. It's, you know, embracing and being with and relating. So I'm assuming you apply that also to the mask that rips. Could you talk a little bit about that, about masks, what that image mm-hmm. means to you? I don't know. I just, I actually really just love hearing your interpretation. I don't, I don't feel moved to, to give my own thoughts on it, really. It's just so exciting to write and then give it up. To mm. all of you that yes. engage with it after me, so yeah, let us stay in the yeah. in the otherness. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. I like what you said. We can go with that. Yeah, and I think that's why when I invite you to talk more about it, I'm not actually even looking for an answer or a meaning. It's just it's yeah. just something that pops up that touched me, and I no, like, I love that. Yeah, that's and, and that's really it. And and there's so much. I mean, I could you know find something in almost every line. I mean, you know, I want to be an accident, a slip in understanding. I mean, you just and you, that's part of, that's yeah, related. Yeah. And I've heard from other writers who say that they're much more interested in other people's interpretations of their writing than what was originally behind their own writing. Mm-hmm. Within yeah, themselves. I mean, it's just great to hear you all. You know, engaging with it. This is the best part. This is the most fun part. It's a lot of work to do it, and then it's super fun to 
just hear it banging around in other people. It's like, it's a joy. And the, that so. it is the accident happening. The accident, and that it's a draft, and your it willingness is. just to open up this work in progress that, because of the illusion that, that you know, in our world, that every, because you know, really, isn't everything a work in progress? Like, what, what's And isn't totally. everything an accident? Yeah, everything's an accident. <laughs> and nothing, everything and nothing is an accident. And, of course, it's great that your last line had to do with strangeness, because that's how we began the show. Yeah. But the way you mm-hmm. do it, I'm Say it again. I'm asking to remain strange. Yes, Mm -hmm. I'm asking. Isn't that another way of asking to be allowed to be in this space of otherness? Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely what what it means to me. And, you know, I do think to your point about the mask, Carla, that, you know, in some ways, I think Levinas really does fight this idea about alterity having anything to do with anything other than human beings. He gets a lot of flack for not wanting to include animals, for example, in this mm-hmm. kind of issue. And part of the reason he was doing that was because he really, 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 really wanted to come up with something that would prevent genocide. He really didn't want there to be another human genocide. And he felt like equating people with dogs, for example, would then bring back this kind of idea that you could treat people like dogs, which, of course, I would argue is not accurate but whatever that's Mm -hmm. where he was at and he does the same thing with ourselves so he doesn't say that we are other to ourselves he really doesn't he wants us to be really focused on this moment of becoming in relationship to another person and we don't even really exist without the encounter with the other so in some ways i'm kind of going against his route i don't even think he would appreciate an autobiographical account of anything really Mm -hmm. but what i actually do think is interesting is that the way that I'm thinking about pain is almost in this way that it is so not mine. It is maybe that infinite. It might even be the similar texture of the infinite that lives inside another human being. But it really isn't like me, quote unquote. It's almost like something else is hanging out with me. And I really just have to, I really just have to surrender to it. There's a powerlessness there that I'm connecting it all to. But again, you know, there's a great documentary out there on Levinas. I actually have no idea what the title is off the top of my head, but it's on Vimeo. If you just Google Levinas documentary, I think it comes up first, but it, and you have to pay for it. It's someone's project, and it's sort of a lo-fi project, but it's really nice. And at one point, one of the people at the end that's being interviewed just says, because also Levinas gets flack for being Zionist, which he absolutely was, and a Palestinian person is talking about his relationship to Levinasian theory in the end of that film and is saying, you know, I took what I wanted and left the rest. You know, I really mm-hmm. like a lot of uh-huh. what mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So I'm kind of in that same boat with it. But yes, the idea of remaining strange feels essential to this work. So I have a, a more concrete question for you because I'm also interested in form, format, all of it. So you are in a PhD program and this yes. is a creative work. It also yes. feels to be a theoretical piece it's a unique piece (laughs) and i think you said that this is also connected to your dissertation am i right so far Mm -hmm. could you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. so what i also found amazing about this knowing the a little bit about the context that it's you did this very unusual blending of kind of critical analysis of philosophy and theory and very profoundly deep personal introspection so can your dissertation be something as fluid and strange and personal as this? 
Why and not? or is this is this <laughs> is this like, Goddard? Is, well, this is but, well, actually, this, this isn't, isn't this isn't no, Goddard. this isn't Goddard. Which but I want. suspect that no, my sense is it's, it, Goddard, yeah. it's no. got to have that much well, space as well. I don't know. That's my actually that's my question. Since what? this is all about well, otherness, we'll, we'll find out. Really, um, <laughs> okay. no, I'm definitely going to have to write a more standard critical okay. work to accompany it. But this is sort of the creative aspect of it that I will still get to showcase. I think in my defense, so. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I am following in a tradition of writers that do similar things, like the people that I mentioned, particularly Avital Renell and Mm -hmm. Helen Sisu, both do a similar thing. I I would say maybe Sisu slightly more in later work. Mm -hmm. But there are many, many other thinkers that are kind of doing this auto theory hybrid, which is a word that's becoming more popularized because of Maggie's. I mean, I'm attributing it, at least in my world, it's it's because of Maggie Nelson's Argonauts that came out recently, and she essentially won the MacArthur for that and for her studies and her writing in this way. But, you know, Annie Dillard again, and Eli Clare does it, and there's a great book by Roland Barthes called Barthes on Barthes, and he's doing it. It's a great thing, and there's just, it's, it's my favorite kind of field of engagement is this sort of, like, autobiographical theoretical thing so i don't know i just i love it and it's my favorite place to be working from right now i also find it to be one of mine as well i'm also thinking about citizen you know more recently uh, yeah and looking at just different ways to deconstruct a theory and using a political lens as well mm-hmm. as very deeply mm-hmm. personal. And also in what you're doing is you're exploring this with some classic philosophers and writers who are remarkably, I think, still alive. <laughs> They're like in their 90s or something. And I think I'd mentioned to you that Mary Rufel was on the show last week. But I think mm-hmm. there's a connection that I feel between your work and Mary Rufel's work. It's that quality of just touching some very deep and tender places in one's psyche and experience with very vivid, vivid yes. imagery. It's yeah. and I don't even know mm. if I have language to do it justice, but I'm I'm very partial very to that. Very visceral. Yeah. I'm very partial to that kind yeah. of work. So in our re- remaining time and we have we have a bit and it'll fly because it's really only a little it's like thirteen minutes. And part of it has to be mm-hmm. playing a little bit of a song that you suggest. Oh and who's this Elliot? Oh, okay. oh, yeah. yeah. I guess I, I, there's a sort of a long section in the middle of this piece that's sort of about the gender experience or an unpacking of that. But yeah, I mean, that whole middle part is something that is, I guess, a, the more of the story aspect of some of the sections of this work. It, it moves in and out. So what I just read to you is a section and then there's a bunch of other sections. And so... Um, there's like a narrative element in each one, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, loosely. And that one is about me encountering a friend of mine who we'd become friends a long time ago. And I was relating to each of their experiences that were maybe similar to mine gender-wise and asking ourselves a little bit about how are we going to do this as we get older? Like, is it going to stay the same? Is it going to change? And like everybody's experience with their gender, I think it changes as we age. But that was sort of about you know, maybe this discomfort around maybe what we thought was going to happen versus what has happened and, you know, that whole, that whole thing. So. And as we continually change, despite our temporary 
understanding of ourselves. <laughs> it's that lim- yeah. the limbo. Yeah. I'm noticing in your bio something that I think I maybe you told me and I forgot that you have some affiliation as a fellow with Naropa. Yeah, I was. It was during their summer writing program. Okay. I was awarded the Carrie Edwards Fellowship. I mm-hmm. think in 2013. Yeah, I was a part timer there as well. And my son is a graduate of Naropa. And um, oh, cool. So that that kind of connects with your your Goddardly life. And Absolutely. you are a fellow at the California Institute of Arts. So you are highly accomplished. Another reason why someone would want to, in my opinion come to Goddard College to learn from you. You authored Ghost Box, which was the piece that we talked mostly about the last time you were on the show. And mm-hmm. it mentions here that there's a forthcoming work called Heaven. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I'm excited about that. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about Heaven? And then while you're, <laughs> so, while, while you're, while you're doing that, think about a piece of music that you think would be... And that's why I brought up Elliot, because I think you mentioned that there's a bunch of oh, this stuff Elliot. on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that would there be relevant. Oh, okay. I don't know how we would get it, but yeah, okay. actually that would be really cool. Oh, okay. It's, uh, if you want to look, Elliot plays under a stick and a stone. And well, Elliot was a Goddard student at the same time I was, and I love him very much. And I think you could find Opal Knightley or something like that on there. That's an album that he made a long time ago. So that, I don't know. I'd be interested to see what you find. Uh, yeah, I got a stick and a stone. Anyway, tell me about Heaven. (laughs) Um, So Heaven is more straightforward autobiographical experiment that was a lot about, again, this sort of idea of gender. But really, for me, I got really interested in irregularized concepts of these dichotomies between masculinity and femininity, irregularized, unpacking Freud or actually deconstructing Freud. And she's basically saying, you know, women are the dark continent, men are the known object. You know, women have to become, but men get to be. She writes this huge list of those dichotomies. And of course, those are essentialist categories, absolutely. But I really wanted to play with what it would mean to be in between those things. And that book is really about my relationship to these women in my life and also my relationship to womanness and kind of the possibilities for womanness in my own body and life, despite going on a very long journey with gender and sexuality and, you know, adulthood, essentially. So that's what that's about. Wow, that's a whole nother show. So I found something, yeah. I found something called Trumpet Vine, A Stick and a Stone. Yeah, that'll work. So I hate saying why to you because just to, you know, squeeze a little bit more of your brilliance out of it. Yeah, that's the right term. Yeah. Brilliance. Uh, so when you were writing, and we didn't talk about it, but you did read it, that whole segment about the bug that you killed, which I thought was yeah. just, So there's so many reasons why that was so great. One is that you talked about a bug you killed. So of course, no, I shouldn't say of course, I went to this place where, oh, you just smacked it on your desk, like you just <laughs> killed it. But no, of course, you just, you in freeing it, oh, that just, what a great little vignette that was, in freeing the bug. Yeah because you are that person who walks softly and lovingly in the snow in Los Angeles. Um, you, yeah. you put it out outside where it froze, which, okay. So was there a sense of, when you're doing this writing from, do you notice ways you can articulate how you have been transformed or metamorphosized? Absolutely. In two minutes or less, can you? 
Three minutes. Three minutes. Okay. Three minutes three or less. Minutes or less can, yeah. can, you, can, you, can you share something, just whatever comes up for you around your own just deep shifts that your own writing provides? Sure. I mean, I also just, I could listen to you talk about this stuff, Carla, forever because it's so much more fun for me to hear you. I hope you're having much fun listening to me yeah, as I am listening yes. to you. I just really deeply appreciate what you pull out and your experience of it. So that's really fun for me. But I guess what I could say is that writing really is my thinking around these things. So like one of the coolest things about having writing be my practice is that you know, I learn about so many of the things I'm thinking about through the act of doing it. And certainly I'm surprised all the time about the things that show up in my work as, as connected to each other. I don't even really, I, I, I actually wrote most of this longhand. I've been writing most of this book longhand because I find that what happens for me if I do write longhand is that I will have ideas that more slowly pop into my head. And so I have a capacity to suspend these relationships a little longer between images and scenes. And so I just love that that bug showed up right there. I think at the time I was really thinking about how uncomfortable I was that I killed it. I was really, I was actually really frustrated about it or whatever. I, I don't even know if frustrated is the right word, but I was uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of trying to pull in any moment of discomfort in the both micro and macro way. And also, you know, what a pain it is to sometimes be fumbling around in the day, just very simply. And also how exciting that is, too, really. And just addressing, you know, profound topics like life and death and the simplicity yeah, no of that deal. moment. Yeah, it was another brilliant moment. Thanks. I'm glad you brought up the writing longhand. I mean, Natalie Goldberg has talked about that. And I need to revisit mm. that myself as a writer. I don't. I've gotten too connected to that keyboard and I need to get back mm. to my the flesh of my fingers around a, a trembling pencil. Mm -hmm. So, Emerson Whitney, what a pleasure. Yes, um, what a, a tremendous pleasure. pleasure. I've, I've loved this conversation yeah. so much. Yeah. And thank you, Brooke. Well, how generous you are to, to give up the time. Oh, well, well, thank you. To be yourself. To be your, just to be you. Yeah. So we're going to go out. <laughs> well, this is, uh, we're going to go out with a stick and a stone, Opal Knightley. So, thank you very much, Emerson. Bye-bye. Thank you both. Bye.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you.